Okay, so tonight we begin, uh, as we mentioned at the end last week, we begin part two of the three parts of the 13 principles. Part two in the sense that we now have a clear picture and image of exactly who God is. So that is, uh, so that's, uh, that's behind us. And uh, we know as far as davening is concerned, as far as communication, our communication with him, now, in the next four principles, six, seven, eight, and nine, so we begin to focus our attention on um, the Torah as a whole. That's really the goal of these, uh, the middle four principles, is to appreciate the authenticity of the Torah and the, uh, the accuracy of, of Torah. Uh, and in order to be able to get ourselves there, so we have to first be able to establish, um, the, in order to authenticate the Torah, so what we need to be able to do is we need, in a sense, to be able to authenticate Moshe Rabbeinu as a prophet. In order to be able to authenticate Moshe Rabbeinu as a prophet, we need to first authenticate the fact that there's such a thing as prophecy. So we have to go through this progression through these four uh, principles to be able to get ourselves ultimately to the fact that uh, that the, the middle stage, as we said in the introduction to the 13 principles, the middle stage of any religion is going to be the laws, which the lawgiver, the creator, whatever we would go ahead and we would call him, we call him God, or we call him Hashem, HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu. What we need to be able to do is, we need to be able to um, uh, um, uh, know that the laws which were given to us, in which we follow, come from him, and those are his expectations of us. So that's the focus of these middle four principles over here, to be able to go ahead and, uh, and to make our way through that, uh, that, that progression so that we can look at the Torah and the mitzvahs and say, yes, this is authentic, this comes from God, this is reliable. Um, I guess it's almost a perfect thing to begin after Parshas Yisro, when uh, we just had the experience of, of Matan Torah, of experiencing the uh, the giving of the uh, of the Torah once again, uh, so now we go back and we will uh, you know begin this uh, this process. Hopefully, get begin this uh, this process. Okay, we may deviate a little bit uh, from uh, the script, but we'll see how things uh, go over uh, over time now. Okay, so now uh, so before we uh, get into uh, a discussion about the. Uh, uh, the veracity in the existence of prophecy uh, before we uh, begin that uh, that route or that, uh, that that approach. So we first have to ha develop an understanding of exactly what prophecy is. When we say nevuah, we talk about having nevuah. So what exactly is that? Uh, what what is that? And uh, in case somebody is interested in a side gig, perhaps after uh, retirement, so and you want to become a prophet. So what exactly is going to be the approach? To, uh, to doing so? How is one going to be able to achieve that, uh, that goal? So there are many different ways by which uh, the commentators and the philosophers and the Kabbalists understand the concept of prophecy, what exactly Nevoah is and what it, uh, what, what it entails. Uh, we're going to try just for simplicity's sake, because you could really do an entire series on, on prophecy. Um, those who know uh, Rabbi Sender from the yeshiva, uh, so he put out an entire sefer about the nevuah, the halachas related to nevuah, and about the nevuah, but we're not going to go, uh, you know, a thorough uh, discussion of that. Really what we're going to do is we're going to limit ourselves to the uh, understanding of the Rambam. 
how exactly the Rambam understands the, uh, the concept of, of prophecy. And that's where we are going to uh, focus our attention. Uh, for the simple reason that these are the Rambam's 13 principles of faith. So I guess it makes sense that we should go with his understanding of prophecy since he's the one who decided that this is, a, you know, in a sense, decided this is going to be a, uh, a, a principle. So Chazal tell us, amongst other things, that in order for a person to be able to be a prophet, in order to become certified and a card-carrying member of the prophecy union, uh, if we were to go ahead and uh, structure such a thing. So there are three specific traits which Chazal identify, which the potential prophet must possess in order to be able to take that step and uh, into, uh, into the realm of prophecy. And uh, as we're going to see, the potential prophet not only has to possess those particular traits, but they have to be possessed on a, uh, they have to excel in those particular areas. So it's not enough just to know how to shoot a basketball. You really have to be like MVP style or you have to be professional level uh, basketball player in order to be able to, or profit, in order to, in these, uh, uh, in order to be able to reach this level of, uh, of prophecy. So what are these three traits that the potential profit must, the, the prerequisites really, that the potential profit must possess and must excel in these areas. So interestingly, Chazal tell us that the three traits are Chachma, Ashirus, and Gvura. Chachma meaning wisdom, knowledge. Ashirus is wealth, and Gvura is strength. So these are the three traits which Chazal say that a prophet must, uh, must have. And now the fact that the prophet has to be in possession of Chachma, so that we can understand that all of us would have assumed that uh, that Kesh Baruch Hu is not going to communicate with somebody who is uh, missing Chachma, who is lacking a Chachma. So as a prerequisite, all of us would have guessed uh, that one. But the wealth and the strength, so that's something which is uh, a little bit uh, curious, that you have to sort of be um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jeff Bezos. So a combination of Einstein, Bezos, and Schwarzenegger. And go ahead and morph them together. There must be some computer program you can find online where you take the, the, the people together and combine their traits. But you go ahead and you combine them together. So uh, uh, Bezos plus Einstein plus Schwarzenegger equals the Navi. Not really what we would think is the 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 grit, the sum total of those three people, but those are the three people that we would really think about in terms of who excel at those particular traits. So now Einstein, again, the fact that somebody has to be really smart and really wise uh, and, and in touch so that we could understand why such a person, uh, that, why that would be a, a, a prerequisite. That's not uh, surprising. Um, God's not going to make, uh, if we put it in, the, in human terms, God isn't going to make even a minute effort to try and communicate with somebody who is not going to be able to understand the communication anyways. Somebody who just doesn't get it. Somebody who doesn't uh, grasp it. So that is not uh, who God is going to, uh, to communicate with. But what, we're, what we would wonder about is the traits of strength and the traits of wealth. Uh, oftentimes when we think of Gedolim, when we think of great uh, uh, leaders in the Jewish people, we think of somebody who did not have much in the area of wealth. Uh, the, I don't know if anybody uh, ever had the opportunity or saw pictures, but for example, of our late Steinman, 
he had a very, uh, a relatively small apartment in, in B'nai Brak, never owned a home, uh, had an apartment. And in his apartment, he didn't really have an office. So when people would go to meet with him, it's certainly at the, uh, towards the end of his life, so the meeting actually took place in his bedroom. He'd be sitting on his bed. There was a table in front of his bed, and that's where he learned. And if you wanted to come speak to him, so you came into the room over there, and that's where you would go ahead and speak with him. So certainly nothing about his apartment um, expressed uh, any sort of wealth whatsoever. But we would imagine if there's a person or one of the people who is a potential candidate for prophecy in the generation that we have all been alive in, so he certainly would have been one of those people who would be on the short list of people who are potential uh, prophets, and yet did not possess any wealth uh, to speak of uh, to speak of whatsoever. He could have used a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a, a good um, uh, handyman could have made a lot of money, you know, doing repairs here and there throughout his uh, throughout his uh, his apartment, and yet he was perfectly content with what was going on. In the same way, uh, we would uh, wonder about why strength uh, is going to be something which is significant, is a necessary prerequisite for uh, for prophecy. What is being a strong man, uh, you know, a bodybuilder or somebody who's uh, strong? Uh, what does that have to do with uh, prophecy? We would hope that the prophet is going to spend his time developing his prophecy skills and not working out with weights and running and jogging and, I don't know, like uh, trying to catch chickens like in Rocky or whatever it is. That would seem to be uh, an area or a pursuit that we would not expect of somebody who's going to be uh, one of our, our, our leading prophets. So the Rambam explains, as one may already uh, uh, guess, is that when we talk about um, uh, prophecy, uh, uh, when we talk about a prophet possessing uh, these three traits, chachma, gvura, and ashirus, wealth, strength, and, uh, and, and wisdom. So we're not talking about them in the conventional way which I have presented, but rather we, uh, the Rambam understands that chazal uh, to be a prerequisite as far as the definition that appears in Pirkei Avos. So Izeu Chacham, who is somebody who's wise according to, uh, to Pirkei Avos? That is, Halomid Mikoladam, somebody who is receptive to knowledge, receptive to learning, and has a capacity to go ahead and learn from anybody. Ezeu Gibor, who's a person who's strong. It's not somebody who is an Arnold Schwarzenegger, somebody who's been working out and has spent hours in the gym uh, uh, you know, doing his uh, doing his reps and his workout, but rather it's a person who is a kovish yitzro, somebody who is in control over themselves. So they don't allow their emotions to dictate how they're going to behave. They don't allow their emotions to go ahead and dictate how they're going to uh, how they're going to conduct themselves. They are somebody who is able to remain in control, and uh, and uh, and uh, their behaviors all uh, will always be well thought out rather than reactive to a situation which is, uh, which, which is going on. And the person who is the ashir, the person who's wealthy, is hasamech bechalko. So not a person with this enormous portfolio, uh, you know, of hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of, uh, of dollars, but rather the person who understands that everything that they have is from Hashem, and Hashem has provided them with everything which, which they need, and they don't need to go looking over their shoulder. They don't need to uh, try and keep up with the Joneses or the Schwartzes or whoever it happens to, the Myers, to go ahead and keep up with the, the others <laughs> in order to, uh, to, uh, to, try and, uh, to try and impress. It's a person who is 
perfectly content with uh, with what they have, knowing that those are all of the tools which they need in order to be able to uh, to develop uh, the best that uh, that they can be. All right. So, Rabbi. Yeah. I'm thinking of somebody like Shimshon. Yes. Who really didn't have much of any of those. I mean, he wasn't the smart, sharpest spoon in the drawer, and he really was, you know, a loose cannon and. Uh, you know, it is unclear whether he really understood that he was, God was directing his life. Um, right. So there are, uh, it, it becomes a, a difficult exercise. I mean, I'm, I'm acknowledging the, the strength of your question. It becomes a difficult exercise to go ahead and uh, explain each individual how they, uh, they meet those categories. Uh, the biggest, the question which I was, which I was expecting, you took it really a, a, in a better direction, but the question which I was expecting was how do we explain Bilam? When Chazal say that Bilam had prophecy, which was, you know, even if it's somewhere within the orbit of Moshe Rabbeinu, how exactly do we understand that? Uh, Bilam is not somebody who stands out as a person of fine character in any way, shape or form. Uh, just by virtue of the fact that he was accused of bestiality is something which already makes us suspicious of everything else he's going to do. I'm not judging. I'm just 21st century. <laughs> but, it, the, but nonetheless, it's something which uh, leads us wondering where was his character refinement in those, uh, those areas that he would be worthy of this dramatic uh, prophecy which he had, in which Chazal talk about in very, uh, very laudable terms. Not that he was a good person, but that his prophecy was, uh, was very strong, was very skilled at prophecy. So I, I, can't, I can't answer that. that uh, you know, I can't answer in, uh, individuals. Uh, what, I, what I would uh, tell you to, uh, to keep in mind is that um, sometimes uh, a person is going to be, be presented uh, sort of as a caricature of themselves. There's, there's, a, there's a uniqueness to Shimshon. So when we want to go ahead and the, when Tanakh is going to describe Shimshon, we're going to describe it in terms of that uniqueness. And if we were to only focus on that uniqueness of who he was, so then that gives us an extreme perspective on who he was. He seems to be lacking all sorts of other traits uh, uh, along the way. So we don't mean to say necessarily that he, we don't mean to imply that he's necessarily uh, lacking those other traits, but those weren't really what was dominant by him and therefore, we emphasize what was dominant rather than, you know, getting a full, uh, a full uh, survey of, uh, you know, what he what he did and what he accomplished and what he was uh, what what he was able to do. So I would go with, uh, you know, a little bit just to to uh, not really to answer your question, but to uh, to mitigate your question or to dull your the strength of your question a little bit. Uh, I would say that he probably did have a number of those traits. They're just not emphasized because. There were other things which uh, which we needed to uh, to emphasize. You could also, you know, relate also yeah. from like Noach to Mim Hayabedarosav. So you could say that they were they were who they were. Bilam, and even in the case of Bilam, they were who they were, but they were they were the potential of what God wanted them to be. Right. So uh, if we take a, a more kabbalistic approach to uh, to prophecy, so certainly uh, that that would uh, that would make a lot of sense. That uh, when God has a particular message which he needs to communicate, somebody's got to get the communication. And if you live in a generation of Noah, it may be that your best bet is going to be Noah. You know, that's uh, the most we're going to, uh, we're, we're going to get uh, out of the, uh, the generation. From the Rambam's perspective, where he, you know, feels very strongly that prophecy can only be achieved by those people who develop their intellect 
and develop their character to the highest of levels. So then we, uh, you know, we, we, we sometimes could, uh, as Ellen brought up, we could sometimes scratch our heads at some of the people who are noted as Nevi'im and say, really them? <laughs> you know, I, I could do better than that. So it's, uh, you know, so that's, uh, but that's what I mean that we, you know, we, we read stories of Tanakh, you know, for example, if you read through the Chumash straight without any Meforshim, without any Chazal and any Meforshim, you don't see that Lavan was such a bad dude. You know, he doesn't do anything so explicitly bad. We certainly don't see, like we say in the Seder, that he tried to kill anybody. You know, he wanted to get one daughter married off. He was a little bit deceptive. You know, that, uh, that we acknowledge that he may have been. But this uh, person who sought to eradicate the Jewish people from their very inception, so we don't really see that he was such a, a bad dude like that. And yet Chazal is sort of able to read between the lines and uh, see, be, uh, you know, beneath the surface and see that there was a lot more going on in terms of who he was and what he was trying to do than the simple presentation that the Psukim give. So, you know, we don't really know much about any of the characters of, of Tanakh. You know, we think we know them because, you know, we, uh, we could read about them over the course of three, four weeks of Parshios. But, uh, you know, even somebody like Avram Avinu, you know, he was 180 years old. How many stories at the end of the day how many stories and incidents do we know about Avram Avinu's life? Let's be generous and say 10. You know, 10 incidents, 10 stories is not much over a lifespan of, uh, of 180 years. You know, there's a lot of other stuff which was going on over there, which uh, isn't presented, and we'll, we'll, we may touch upon this later, but it's not presented because it's not going to be necessary for the main thrust of what the Torah is trying to, uh, to share and what the Torah is trying to convey. So we take things in a sense, uh, you know, as a matter of faith, you know, if we could, uh, you know, be faithful in a series of uh, on the animamins, but we take it as a matter of faith that, uh, that these, were, uh, these were great uh, individuals. Okay. Um, now, um, so in the Rambam goes on to say that if a person, uh, uh, the potential candidate, as a person is in the, uh, you know, the bachelor stage of their, uh, their prophecy uh, studies, of their Nevoah studies, their Nevoah degree. So the person may have, uh, you know, could potentially have worked on a number of character traits, may have mastered and refined the majority of his, uh, of his traits uh, with a few things. You know, there's a few areas which he has not yet got under, he or she has not yet got under, under control. Uh, whatever those traits happen to be, it could be haughtiness, it could be, uh, it could be anger, it could be, uh, you know, whatever trait you, whatever your poison is, whatever you, you struggle with. So if the person is still working on that particular trait, so that trait, which is not yet refined and not yet elevated, that creates uh, sort of like a glass ceiling, which doesn't allow the potential profit or the, the profit candidate to be able to, to make further progress. That, that area where the person is not yet uh, uh, worked on it, is not yet uh, elevated himself. So that's going to weigh that candidate down and prevent them from being able to, uh, to move on. Uh, you know, it's like any prerequisite that you would have towards your master's uh, degree, you know, being accepted into a master's program. If you fail that course, which is a prerequisite, so you may have excelled, you may have gotten A's in all of your other courses, but in that particular thing, right, let's say you're just not good at chemistry and you keep failing your, uh, your chemistry class. So if you can't, if you can't pass that class, you're not going to get accepted into the master's program because that failure means that you're, you're not yet up to, uh, up to speed. So all of your good grades everywhere else uh, doesn't matter if in a particular area 
we have not uh, got there. Now, there are some traits which the Rambam identifies, which are uh, so fundamental that they are, uh, uh, you know, you, you can't even get like an exception to the rule. Uh, that uh, certain traits are going to be such a barrier that you, you don't even get your, uh, your, your foot in the door. It's not even worth applying. So an example of that is a person, or one of the traits which you mentioned is a person who is haughty. A person who has not yet achieved, uh, achieved the trait of humility and remains a haughty person. So that is going to be a major barrier as far as being able to, uh, to become a, a prophet, even to the slightest uh, degree. Chazal tells us, if uh, the, the Dafyomi people may remember for the Gemara and Sota, it talks about how bad haughtiness is. Maybe a shmini shebeshminis, an eighth of an eighth. You know, maybe a little bit of assertiveness one is going to need. But overall, Chazal say that haughtiness is one of those traits that, you, that one should run very, very far away from because that's going to be this huge barrier, which is not going to allow you to be able to, uh, to, uh, to make progress. And we know that that's true on the flip side of this, because Moshe Rabbeinu, who we'll learn about in a few weeks, who is the greatest of prophets, he was also Anav Mikol Adam. He was also somebody who was more humble than everybody else. So those two things go together. The greatness of his prophecy, it wasn't by coincidence that he was a great prophet and he happened to be humble as well, those are inextricably linked. That the reason why he was such a great prophet is because he was so humble. Because I'll compare him to Avram Avinu, if you remember this, uh, this Gemara, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, although we imagine that Avram Avinu was incredibly humble in terms of his approach uh, to, to everybody else, but still when he went ahead and he described himself, he said, Anochi Afer Ve'efer. So although he described himself as dust and ash, Chazal point out that his description of himself was still, still something of substance. Whereas Moshe Rabbeinu says, Nachnuma, what am I? Meaning I'm nothing, absolute nothingness. So not even ash or substance, uh, not even ash or, or dust, which has some uh, substance to it. Moshe Rabbeinu felt that he was nothing, didn't, didn't have anything of substance uh, about him whatsoever. And that's what made him a greater anav even than an Avram Avinu. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest of all, was the greatest of all, of, of all prophets. Another trait, which uh, I imagine most people are aware of, which is a, uh, a, a barrier to prophecy, is sadness. Sadness, being in a state of uh, sadness, uh, somebody who's uh, uh, you know, feeling down, that also is going to be a barrier towards uh, being able to achieve prophecy, being able to achieve uh, any sort of nevuah. And that's why we find in Nevi'im, we find at times, I remember if it was by Elisha or by Yahu, but one of them was feeling down and depressed and they called the musicians in to go ahead and play for them a little ditty of sorts, whatever ditties they used to play back in the time of, uh, uh, of Tanakh, you know, biblical ditties for uh, 400. But they would go ahead and they would, uh, they would mindset so that they could get into a more relaxed and at ease state so that they could achieve their prophecy rather than in a sad or depressed or angry or, or despondent state which becomes this barrier as far as being able to, uh, to achieve prophecy and that's why this, uh, this uh, uh, prerequisite Rabbi Arya Kaplan talks about it in his works on, on Kabbalah 
but he says also that if one is in, from what we've been talking about over the past, uh, I don't know, the year or so with, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic and the different uh, modes that a person's in. So in order to be able to get into a prophetic state and certainly to be able to get into a meditative state, one needs to, the mind needs to be able to relax. The mind has to be in a state of relaxation in order to be able to do so. So if the heart is racing and the breathing is shallow and all of those things, because one is angry or one is perturbed or sad or whatever it is, so that's not going to allow the mind to be able to relax to become receptive to the prophetic communication or a meditative uh, state. And therefore, you have to go ahead and you have to use something like music or something like breathing in order to be able to calm the body and calm the mind down so that it could uh, be returned back into a state where it is receptive for this type of uh, this type of uh, communication. Okay, so that is. One of the things which uh, is important to uh, to explore is what exactly Chazal and the Rambam are teaching us over here when they talk about uh, the uh, the necessity to refine our character, to refine ourselves in our thinking process in order to be able to receive a, a, a prophet. Um, if God has a message that He would like to send, right? There's a we're we're uh, to send us a Navi and tell us what exactly is this COVID-19 stuff going on? What's the message over here? What are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to go? What's the function over here? What, we, we would love for a good certified Navi to come along and tell us what the, uh, what the story is. So if God wants to go ahead and share with us a message, why can't he just share with us a message? Why do I need all of these prerequisites in terms of character refinement and mental, uh, you know, acuity and all of those uh, those different things, why does it, why is that necessary? If God has a message He wants to share, just share it. Just go ahead and tell us what the message is. It could be like a, an Amber Alert. Suddenly, everybody's phone goes off with a uh, you know with a message. You look at it and you see what exactly the uh, the message is. That would be quite a convenient way for Kesh to go ahead and share with us some sort of a prophetic uh, message. So. They are, the only way to be able to receive this uh, this prophetic communication is through going through the rigorous steps of character refinement and elevation in order to be able to uh, to qualify. So uh, the answer to this um, uh, will uh, will uh, the the approach that we're we're, we're going to take to explain this has to do with the concept of holiness. The Jewish definition of holiness, of Kedusha, of what we mean when we describe somebody as a holy individual. Now, I'm going to take you back. My, I'm guessing from other hints, which, uh, which uh, I have in my, uh, my notes over here from the first time that we gave this series, they were going back to 5757. So that would be 24 years ago, I think, right? Or 5781, right? So that's going to be 24 years ago. Uh, I didn't look it up. If I had more time uh, before, I was going to look it up. But I think it was uh, it was that year. So that would be 24 years ago. Would be what year? 97. Yes, that would be 97. So uh, I'm pretty sure that Cardinal Bernadine died in 1997. Because in my notes, I make reference to him. Uh, somebody could probably Google it without uh, you know without too much difficulty. But uh, 
but uh, I, I think I gave a few drushes about uh, following the death of, of, of the Cardinal. So it must have been around this time that I was putting this, uh, this together. But if you remember, if you could rewind back to whatever it is that, uh, that he died and what the news said about him uh, following his death is that people from all walks of life described him as a holy person. That was one of the, the traits by which he was described by all sorts of different people from different, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, different groups of people who had different interactions with him but he was consistently described as a holy individual. And the question is, what exactly does the regular Joe on the street, no offense to jo Joseph Bernadine, but what does a regular Joe on the street uh, uh, mean when they go ahead and they describe somebody like, the, uh, like Cardinal Bernadine as a holy uh, individual? Uh, were they just, uh, were they using the term holiness to describe him as a spiritual person? meant they, that they saw him as somebody who was connected with God, whatever that, uh, that meaning of God is, but they saw him as somebody connected with God. Is it because they saw him as a wise person and they're using the term holiness as synonymous with his wisdom? Do they mean that he had such a great love and care for his fellow human being that that itself is what they're describing as the holiness of Cardinal Bernadine was his benadam l'chavero, his, uh, his care and concern for other people? And when we go ahead and we say that a person, if we were to describe somebody as a kadosh, right? We use, for example, we say the orachaim kadosh. That's something that's a, a term which is used when we talk about the biblical commentator, the orachaim. He's often referred to as the orachaim kadosh. So, what exactly, or the, the yeah, what, what exactly is the uh, the? Do we mean when we say that somebody is a a, a kadosh? Um, uh, holy people. Somebody who is a Kaddish isn't somebody who necessarily is able to um, predict the future. And it's not a person who's going to be able to do um, uh, miracles. We don't need somebody to do a miracle to be uh, a nace, you know, changing nature in order to be described as a Kaddish. And we don't need that person to be able to predict the future. We have a tendency now, certainly in the 21st century, to try and make out all of our gedolim as having... Uh, you know, close to prophetic uh, knowledge of things and be able to say things which at the time nobody understands what they mean. They're a week later, a month later, a year later, suddenly we say, oh, look at how wise they were and how prophetic their, uh, their, their advice was. It must be that they were receiving prophecy or something of that, uh, of that sort. It's a recent thing uh, that, uh, that we look to uh, our leaders in many of the bi biographies. So they are presented in that way, but it's, it, it's not something which is really part of who it used to be in our history, who we, used to, who we used to look towards as our great leaders. They didn't need to be able to predict anything about the future. They didn't need to be able to perform anything which was seemed as miraculous. They, need to be a, they needed to be a person who was dedicated to the Jewish people, somebody who was selfless, a selfless leader of the Jewish people. Those were the people that we looked up to, regardless of how many, uh, uh, regardless of the fact that they couldn't, they did not perform any miracles or didn't predict anything in the, in the future. So what really in Judaism, from our perspective, when we talk about a person who is a kadosh, we talk about a person who is holy, what we're talking about is a person who has nullified their ego. The sense of self, again, in whatever synonyms you would like to use with ego and with self and anochios and all of those types of terms, which you find in, in various sfarim, 
So a holy individual is a person who has conquered himself or herself in the sense that they are not motivated. Uh, their behavior is no longer motivated out of self-interest, but their behavior is motivated out of selfless interest. They're looking to, uh, to uh, carry out Hashem's wishes, regardless of what they, what's in store for them personally. They're looking to help others in whatever way that they can. And they're not looking for recognition. They're not looking for thanks. They're not looking for honor or prestige, which is going to come from those things. They're doing it simply because they recognize that that is the correct thing to do. And that is not only the correct thing to do, but that is a laudable thing that they that they should be doing. And therefore, they're going to go in that uh, that uh, direction. Every person, every Jew is in possession of a soul. Soul has many parts, but every everybody has is in possession of a neshama. And that neshama is, as far as what exists uh, in our world, in a sense, in our universe, that's probably a spiritual, a, an entity as could exist. And that spirituality is an inherent part, an essential part of every one, of every one of us here. Every one of us has this lofty spiritual soul. Chazal described it as coming mitachas kisei It comes from under the heavenly throne. So it comes from God himself, from under God himself. That's where the soul is. And it's inside of each and every one of us. What happens is that uh, the soul ends up just like anything else, uh, you know, a diamond in the rough, you know, as, uh, as, as, as the, the saying goes. So what happens is, is that over the course of our lifetime, through experiences which we've had and choices which we have uh, made over the course of our lifetime, and the, the emphasis on ego, which we have, uh, which we have uh, done over the course of our life. So that makes, uh, in many instances, it makes the ego stand out. It makes the sense of self stand out more so than our spiritual side, and then that becomes a, a habit which we uh, which we find ourselves, you know, falling into, and that becomes part of our our, our thinking process. Is the uh, the ego, the sense of self, who we are, and everything is perceived, everything is processed through that sense of self. Um, you know, I was just speaking to an individual um, uh, before class. Uh, and uh, the place where that person lives, so there is a blackout. Whatever the power went out over there, and uh, whatever it is, they were uh, complaining about how terrible the, uh, the their circumstances. So I said, "Oh, that's terrible! You know, how many people have lost power? Is it just your building? Is it just your house which lost power, or it's like an entire neighborhood?" They said, "No, there's like three thousand people who uh, you know who have lost power." Okay. So 3,000 people, so that's, you know, whatever it is, that's, uh, you know, let's say one square mile of people. So even though there were 3,000 people, 3,000 families, 3,000 homes, which had lost power, this individual, which I, was, uh, which I was speaking to, saw it as God punishing them. God did this in order to punish them. And as they're telling me that 3,000 people or 3,000 homes are in the exact same boat that they are in, they are seeing this completely from that ego sense that the entire universe revolves around me. And if the power is out, it's because God was punishing me. That's it. It's a, it's a very simple equation. Something bad happens. It's all because of me. With, you know, they don't see good things happening to them, but they can see something at the same time in the same sentence that they're telling me that the experience is being shared by thousands of people. It doesn't change their perspective, their ego, which sees it as revolving completely around, uh, completely around uh, them. 
and this is what happens. This is, uh, if you remember what I, I, I've said in Shola many a time, the, uh, the vort from, uh, from Rav Kook, who says that when uh, the Pasuk says, Ki leva adam ra urav, that the Yetzirah of a person is evil minura from, let's just call it from birth, from their earliest stage. So Rav Kook asks, how exactly are we to understand that? Person doesn't become a Baal Bechira, doesn't have the ability to choose until they are older than, than, than a newborn, older than a baby, older than a toddler. You know, hopefully by the time we get to our 20s or so, we're able to make uh, good choices. Certainly they're not, we're not expecting babies to go ahead and make good choices. So why does the Torah uh, go ahead and characterize people as Ra Minurav, as being bad or evil from their, uh, from their very outset or from their very origin? So if Cook says that the idea behind that is, is that uh, humans are the most um, uh, underdeveloped of all uh, uh, creatures which are uh, born in the, I don't want to say in the animal kingdom, but w- which exist. They're the most dependent on the adults in their lives for survival. So most other creatures, uh, not all of them, but most of them, there's some level of independence which they have even immediately after birth. You know, some of them could walk already, some of them could hunt already. You know, there's a certain degree of independence which they have. Humans remain dependent for the longest period of time. And we know that the nature of a, a, a baby is, because the baby certainly doesn't have uh, the ability to think through things, is the baby only see things, sees things from its perspective. And as far as it is concerned, it is the center of the universe. That's it. That's all the baby cares about is its needs. It's hungry. It's dirty. It has gas. It's uncomfortable, whatever it is. And uh, as soon as it has any feeling of discomfort whatsoever, just give out a couple of good krechts or a couple of good screams and some doting adult is going to come running and take care of those things right away. So as far as character development is concerned, so what's the initial training that every baby goes through? I'm the center of the universe. Everything revolves around me. My needs are what's important. The fact that nobody, none of the adults in my life are getting a good night's sleep. They're tired, they're cranky, they can't handle this anymore. It's completely irrelevant to the baby because all the baby cares about is itself. So if that's the initial training of every human, that they are the center of the universe and everybody is there to serve them, that's how the ego initially gets inflated. And that's why it's Ra Minurov is because they... Uh, logically or think big picture as far as what's going on in the world in, uh, in interpersonal relationships and anything like that. The initial training is that I am the center of the universe and everybody is going to take care and attend to my needs. And in reality, what we do is we spend the rest of our lives trying to actually grow out of that, trying to mature out of that perspective. We've all come across uh, people who chronologically are much older than babies, but as far as developmentally, they haven't really progressed much further than that. They continue to see things only from their perspective and how the, you know, uh, the entire city has lost their power. And somehow this is a punishment which is directed specifically towards me. Everybody else, oil the rush, oil the So everybody else is just the shuffin, is just the neighbor who has the, uh, the bad mazel of living near this one person. But everybody else is going to suffer because God is, go- is trying to, uh, to, uh, to punish me. So if a person has that sense, that strong sense of ego, that they are the center of the universe and everything revolves around them, that ego is not going to allow them to connect with God. 
it's like, you know, the magnets which are going to repel one another, they cannot go ahead and they cannot connect while that part of the sense of personality is going to be dominant, is going to be active. And that is going to get in the way of, uh, uh, that's going to get in the way of the neshama being able to express itself. So if you have, uh, you have a magnet, so magnet should be able to connect to the other magnet, soul and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So the soul and Hashem, they have a natural uh, tendency to want to attach to one another, to want to connect with one another. What gets in the way is if you put enough schmutz over the neshama, so that schmutz layer on top of layer on top of layer on top of layer, then the magnet suddenly isn't strong enough to be able to make that connection anymore. There's too many layers of schmutz in between the individual, the individual soul in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the natural connection and the natural attachment which should take place is not able to occur because of all of those layers of schmutz. And a lot of that schmutz ultimately is ego layers, lego my ego or whatever it is. But it's going to be ego layers which are going to get in the way and they're going to create that barrier which is not going to allow for that, uh, for that attachment. And if we are in the mindset where we're going to pursue uh, uh, immediate gratification, we expect things to come instantly to us, which is very much ego-based rather than non-ego-based. So if that's our mindset, so then that's going to make it much more difficult for us to be able to, uh, to connect with, with, with Hashem. And the holy person is a person who is, uh, has nullified their sense of self or conquered their ego, is in self-control, and they're not allowing their ego to go ahead and dictate to them how exactly they should behave and what they're going to do. And that's why, from a, uh, from a Jewish perspective, that's why this is such a necessary prerequisite in order to be able to achieve prophecy. To be able to connect with Hashem, you need to scrape away all of those layers of ego in order to allow the natural connection between individual and the neshama to be able to, to connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's why, uh, in terms of character development, in terms of prerequisites, so that's why um, ego and, and haughtiness are amongst the worst traits that a person can possess if they're actually going to embark on that, uh, on that, uh, on that pursuit. And that's why, from the Rambam's perspective, uh, character development is the most important prerequisite, uh, prerequisite in order to be able to achieve, uh, to achieve Nevoah. Um, okay, so I think we'll hold it over here. Uh, for uh, for tonight, uh, we'll pick it up uh, from here in Hashem next week. So don't forget uh, Thursday in Hashem is going to be the class on the allowance whether it's acceptable to listen to the Megillah reading over Zoom or not over the phone or over Zoom any sort of electronic uh, device. So and that will uh, uh, formulate for us the uh, the policy or the uh, the protocol which we're going to follow in Shul as far as Megillah reading uh, this, uh, assuming that nothing dramatic changes as far as COVID between now and Purim, the two and a half weeks we have until then. So this will then give us the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the guideposts as far as how we're going to handle that. So I think it's, a, it's an important share that, uh, you know, to, uh, to attend if you have the, uh, the opportunity and the time to do so. It will be 8.30 on Thursday night at this uh, Zoom channel. Will you include uh, two cups and a string? Uh, two cups and a string. Um, I'm going to speak to the the the, the fell that I'm in touch with. That's interesting. I, I'm not sure. Thank you, Rabbi. All right. Rabbi, take care. All Thank the best to you. Forward. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay warm. Thank you.